Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Elizabeth Fields, the COO of the Gary Sinise Foundation. Elizabeth joined the Gary Sinise Foundation in 2018 as its Director of Development before being promoted to Chief Operating Officer. She brings over 20 years of nonprofit leadership experience to the foundation, having previously held a variety of executive roles with NPR, the University of Pennsylvania, University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, University of Arizona's Eller College of Management, and Michigan State University. Learning to collaborate during a crisis was pivotal building block in her leadership development, particularly in the weeks and months after 9-11. Taking collective action with a unified goal in mind and keeping with the best interests of her colleagues has likewise proved pr- crucial during the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in how the foundation accomplishes its mission. Throughout her career, Elizabeth has learned that passion is the most important trait of being happy and successful as a leader. Using this passion has allowed her to evaluate and build short-term and long-term approaches in multiple industries, creating collaborative environments, trusting people to do their jobs, empowering staff, giving credit where credit is due, and providing support and guidance are all values she takes to heart. In her leisure time, Elizabeth enjoys surfing, baseball, cycling, and playing golf, and she thrives on the grit, passion, determination, and strength required of each activity. Elizabeth is also a member of the COO Alliance. So Elizabeth, thanks for joining us on the Second Command podcast. Well, thank you for having me on your show today. I am very excited to be here. Now, I missed that on my first read-through. When did you get into surfing? Well, I actually, I grew up in Los Angeles, but I didn't get into surfing until uh, my husband and I moved back to California from Chicago uh, in uh, 2006. I wasn't actually a big fan of coming back to California. So I said, okay, if uh, we're going to move back there, I'm going to create a list of my top three things that I want to do. And surfing lessons was the number one. So I love it. Really, really relaxing. That's super cool. Yeah, it's 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 one of those super fringy sports that when people find it, they really kind of find their like their flow, right? And um, the rest of the world just kind of sits and watches you. It's pretty beautiful to see it. Yeah, it is. I I, I would say I'm very bad at it, but it's very relaxing. <laughs> I love being in the ocean. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's okay. why I took it up later in life. I don't know. <laughs> I've. I've tried to do it three times and all three times I got so frustrated that I just finally said, I it's for, it's definitely for Elizabeth, not for me. So I can't pull that one off. So um, when we were talking earlier, I wanted to find out a little bit about some of the background that you've come into your COO role at the Gary Sinise foundation, but some of it was the, I guess the skill sets that you've picked up at working at the different universities and being in the, the senior roles at those universities. I'm curious if you can tell us what, you've kind of pulled from those different roles and and you can migrate through kind of your resume and talk about some of the leadership lessons you've pulled through. I'm curious about that. It's a really good question. Um, So in the university world, I was focused on fundraising. So there was times that I would be dedicated to a particular department. So you'd have listed off a couple of schools I was with that were business school related um, at Michigan State University, I raised money for libraries, computing and technology department. At UPenn, it was for the university as a whole. So just depending on where I was at, um, 
would be what the need was um, in that particular situation. So at Michigan State University, I was able to be a lot more entrepreneurial. Uh, they had never had a dedicated fundraiser there before. So while I had to abide by the university's uh, policies, the provost of the division was a big fan of just throw things at the wall, uh, see if it sticks, and then develop the strategy from there. Where at a UPenn, there was a lot more structure and policies that you had to abide by. But uh, you know, I was able to learn you know the specific policies and guidelines that were very successful. I mean, there's a reason why Ivy League schools raise so much money and they have such mm-hmm. a you know, right. Mm-hmm. Sure. So being able to take their systems. Um, and bring them to me, excuse me, bring them with me to an NPR um, or to Gary Sinney's foundation, but then also bring that entrepreneurial spirit has allowed me to help uh, develop, I guess, um, sort of a leadership style uh, throughout my career. So, so what do you think your big lessons then were from fundraising specifically? that's a tough role. It's kind of, it almost seems like the role in the nonprofit world that a lot of people wouldn't want to get into because you're having to ask for money and it's socially like unacceptable. Right. So, you know, (laughs) yeah. yeah, What are the big lessons from that? You know, um, in some circumstances, it's socially unacceptable. So this is interesting. When I was working at NPR, which is national public radio, just in case for some reason, somebody in your audience doesn't realize that, um, I was in charge of fundraising for their uh, Western regional office, which is NPR West. And there, the fundraiser was like the holy grail, right? (laughs) You really had to raise money for the programming to exist. So the um, member stations, the reporters, and even the supporters, they actually wanted to talk to you. A lot of times at universities, they're running from you. <laughs> the alumni are like, we know what you do. <laughs> you're, yeah, oh my God, you're, you know, sure. you're poisoned. You're going to come ask us for money. Um, so it's, uh, I guess the big lesson would be that um, it's not just about raising money. It's about building relationships. I was wondering if that's where you're going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the kind of money that, so that's the other interesting thing about fundraising. There's the annual fund, which is when you get a phone call or an email or something in the mail that asks you for the $50, which is really important to a nonprofit. And then there's the major gift officers and principal gift officers that tend to ask people for $500,000 plus. And those take a long time to develop. You don't just call somebody and say, hey, I wanna have a meeting and will you give us $500,000? On average, the industry says it takes about 18 months to cultivate that relationship once you've identified a person who have the intent and interest in giving to your specific nonprofit or charity or university. So Mm -hmm. it's really about building rapport and matching that interest with the need of the nonprofit. So it makes it fun. It makes it which? I say it makes it fun because it's very, it's a little puzzle almost. So you're really probably picking up the whole, just keeping your prospects warm and going them, taking them through a longer sales cycle and building that trust and relationship with them, which is critical in every business sales cycle as well. Yes. And I, you know, I have, um, it's really interesting to have observed um, colleagues throughout my career and their style. Some of them are, you know, every single time you have to talk about the nonprofit and I'm not a big fan of that. You always have to bring it back to the organization at some point because you want them to support it but I really think you need to hear what they're saying. I had a um, 
a donor. Luckily, she became a donor at UPenn up in the Bay Area. And uh, it's really interesting. I She finally took a meeting. I, I, to this day, I'm not really sure why she took the meeting, but I'm just grateful she did. And she was going through her 25th uh, reunion. And, you know, we started talking about her joining the reunion committee. And then from there, we found out that her son's really into baseball. So I said, well, maybe you'll be interested in, um, you know, joining one of the sports boards. Um, and uh, the son actually had noticed I'm a big fan of baseball, as you mentioned. I actually my uh, backpack is a raw. It's made out of Rawlings baseball material. That's cool. how big of a fan I am. So it's sitting next to me on the chair. The kid comes home from baseball practice and says, oh, my God, da, 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 da. And he starts asking me all kinds of questions about baseball. The, the reason why I bring this up is about three months later, once we had already closed the loop on her joining the committee and being a board member and giving money, um, she came up to me and said, you know, my son asked me where I was going tonight because there was a pet event. And she said, I'm going to go to a pet event. And he said, oh, he's like, are you going to see Elizabeth? He's like, can you ask her what spring training game she's going to go to this year? <laughs> so the whole conversation literally became about spring training baseball. Mm. I had a colleague standing next to me who said, why did you never bring a pen? And I'm like, because I listened to the donor and she wanted to talk about baseball. It doesn't have to be the same conversation every time. She didn't want it to be that time. Mm. I think that's just critical, really listening to what they're saying and having a conversation. Again, it's about building relationship and rapport. And if there's a couple of times they want to talk about baseball. Talk about baseball. Yep. Yeah, we used, we learned that back in our college pro painters days where we called it the up what was part of the upfront four when you arrived at the person's home, you had to look for one or two things that you could have some commonality and it was like a picture of their children or a picture that showed a sport or a hobby or something in their living room that would show some interest of theirs. And we had to we we actively practiced like walking into a room and finding something to talk about, right? And yep. yeah, you're right. And that's that is so similar with some of our prospects too. It's also very interesting with um, some of our international customers as well, how they do business very differently from how we might in the U.S. or Canada too. To be cognizant of that. So you so you've worked around the universities, you worked in fundraising. Again, the universities have a lot of the systems and processes. Did you see the bad parts of systems as well as the good parts? And and how do you bring that into the business world so that you don't kind of overcomplicate and, and develop all the red tape and corporate bureaucracy that yeah, I guess some of the universities could get involved in? Or yeah. do they? Is that just is that just a, a perception but not reality? Most perception. It's very bureaucratic. <laughs> it is, is okay. Sure. I haven't been at one university where that is not the case. Um, even going through interviews. I mean, it's unbelievable. If you go for an interview, no matter what level you're coming in at, and you literally have to meet, you know, three days of interviews from the building manager to the dean to everybody in between. It get, they get very offensive, offended too, if you don't. <laughs> so everything's bureaucratic. It's unbelievable, actually. Um, you know, the... the um, but you said they do have some systems that are really good. Others, they wouldn't be able to do what they do. Well, that's the thing. Now, some of them are just outstanding and what I've been able to do is take these systems that work and say, okay, I'm going to bring them to the next organization and I can adapt the systems to where I'm at at that particular organization at the time and then grow the systems accordingly. The hindrance of it is in some circumstances, there's no room or there's no, I don't want to say there's no room for changing it, but there's not a willingness to change it. And then in some circumstances, you're sitting there thinking, you know, if you even just 
consider it, it actually might strengthen the process, but it's just so rigid in some circumstances. It, it, it is what it is. And I think that actually can hurt an organization as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the Gary Sinise Foundation. What do you do? And then I just want to talk a little bit about some of the nonprofits before we get into your specific role. So what's the Gary Sinise Foundation do? Um, so we, um, so, so Gary Sinise, whom uh, is an actor and a humanitarian, started the foundation 10 years ago. And it focuses on serving our nation's defenders, veterans, first responders, their families, and those in need. Um, we have four programs and 14 initiatives that serve into these programs. Anytime that I talk to somebody and they sit there and say, what is it you do? I usually say, what is it that we don't do? We literally do a little bit of everything. We work with World War II veterans. We work with um, Gold Star families. We work with high school students. We build homes. We modify homes. Uh, Gary's band, Gary Sinise and the Lieutenant Dan band goes and plays concerts at bases and military um, hospitals. So it's a lot of different things in this space. And it's just, it's so exciting to be here. It's a, it's a great cause and I'm just grateful for the opportunity. Okay. So then tell us about nonprofits as a whole. I mean, I've, I used to, and I have a very different view now, but I used to feel like nonprofits were almost like the parent teacher board, like nothing would ever get done, but that just isn't the case. So how does a, how does a non, how does a successful nonprofit run? What's the structure like and how do you operate? A successful nonprofit runs as uh, a successful business does. So if you go in a nonprofit and say, okay, here's our cause, but in order to achieve that, we're going to run it as if it's a private business, it's going to be much more successful. What happens a lot, I think, out there is the perception is, and I think this isn't true in some cases, um, for grassroots organizations or smaller organizations, there's such a rush to raise money that year to be able to offer their programs that they can't really focus on a proper structure that will make them uh, run a little more efficiently. Mm-hmm. But um, here at the Gary Sinise Foundation, our founder and the executive director at the time had the foresight to sit there and say, well, we're going to raise money for um, the next year. So we always know you know, that we're fully funded. And then rather than scrambling around, we can actually run it like a business and be successful. So then we can be fully funded for the next year. That's super smart, actually. So you're actually leaning ahead. You're, you fundraise. So, so the money that you're working off of for 2021, you know what you've got to spend. You, then you just kind of reverse engineer that and work into it. So Correct. you're never, you're never running out of cash. You just operate. Yeah, you are operating. That's really smart. That's actually smarter than most businesses actually even operate. Most businesses <laughs> don't operate that way. Yeah, no, it, so, it was really, really smart. I have to say, if I ever uh, open my own nonprofit nor business, I'm going to sit there and say, this is the way to do it for sure. <laughs> yeah. There's something interesting about that. So you, you mentioned to me earlier on when we were talking prior to, to going live, um, something around the fact that nonprofits have there's like a rating system or something in place to show what percentage of revenue is actually getting out to the causes so that it's not just being sucked up by the, the managers or the family. Like how, how does that work? So there's a, an organization called charity navigator and they're sort of the watchdogs of, Mm. I guess the nonprofit world. Um, You, you really work hard to get what's called a four-star rating. We've had it here at the Garrison East foundation for four years running It's when you make sure 
that no more than 15% of the money you raise goes back to admin uh, services. So here we are running about 88% of the money raised going back to our programs, thus having a great impact on the communities in which we serve. And the remainder goes to our admin fees. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of charities and nonprofits out there. And what will happen is uh, the sophisticated donor will go to this website and they'll sit there and say, I'm interested in supporting a nonprofit that does first responder work, which is one of our programs. And they'll type it in and it will show that Gary Sinise Foundation has a four-star rating, which means we're being fiscally responsible and ensuring that the money raised really goes back to our program. So it's, it's important. Yeah. It is really is it kind of, It's kind of like the Better Business Bureau for nonprofits. I guess that's a good way to look at it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Or like a Yelp or like a Yelp <laughs> review or something. Yeah, that's a good point because you actually do go on there. And if there's, you know, a, a, some kind of red flag, it will actually show it. It will give a little yeah. like a warning about the foundation or not our foundation, but I, it, about an organization if you're looking it up. That's cool. Now, so Gary Sinise, is he, he's not actively involved in the foundation or is he still alive? Still alive. He's still alive and he's very active, actually. He's okay. very, very active. Um, he, um, you know, people always ask me, they're like, yeah, you know, you know, is he really as humble as he, you know, as he seems to be, is he hands-on? Do you, do you actually talk to him? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. Um, he's not one of those actors that just throws his name on a foundation. He's literally the legit thing. And uh, just, uh, he, if he could do, here, here we go. So, he does about, well, not in 2020, but about 40 concerts a year. And he'll always sit there and say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back off, you know, and you're like, okay, you know, what are you going to do? Back off to 42. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, or he'll add them, you know, all of a sudden yeah. like, there's six more that I want to do. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll only grow by 5% this year. I'm going to back off and we'll only grow. Yeah. So now, so you're the COO for the Gary Sinise Foundation and there's a CEO as well. And there's something intriguing about the CEO. Can you want to tell us about him? Yeah, so uh, it's Robin Rand. He served uh, in the uh, Air Force his entire life. He's a four-star general. There's not a lot of them out there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, here's another thing I always tell people that, um, you know, I, I didn't have the privilege of serving myself. And, you know, even five years ago, if somebody would have said to me, you know, you're going to report to a four-star general at some point in your life. I literally would have thought they were crazy. But here I am reporting to a four-star general. Um, it's, it's nothing like you would think at, at first I was actually literally scared. I was very yeah. scared, Yeah, I would be too. <laughs> but he's, he's so humble and, um, genuine and uh, often forgiving, uh, that it's, it's hard to remember that he's re- a retired four-star general. So I just, I'm, I'm just privileged to work with him. So did the movies do a disservice for this role or is he an exception to the rule in that kind of four-star general role? Because in the oh, movie, in the yeah. movies, they're yeah. In the movies, you're. I don't even want to look at them on the screen in case they look. You know, there's <laughs> like. Ah, really you know, it's interesting that you asked that. We have uh, another four-star general on our board, and uh, some three-star generals who are on our advisory council. And actually, now that I think about it, none of them are like what you see in the movies at all. <laughs> so mm. maybe it's when you know maybe when when they retire and come to the civilian world that's what i don't know (laughs) oh but no but i I wonder if it is more the level five leadership right the drive but that humility and they recognize i remember watching a movie 30 years ago called taps 
and it was about this military cadet school and and the the dad the father figure was telling one of the the lead, you know the head of the cadets the the president of the school kind of the you know the student council kind of president and he said um you know the other cadets will respect your title but they need to respect the person and i think that that was something that i saw there was yeah, they had to be more human. And I wonder whether that is what gets these level four or star, four-star generals to that four-star level is they are more human. They are more approachable. They are more, you know, open and relatable. They aren't the dictator that, that the movies show them to be. Yeah, you know, that would make a lot of sense because my interaction so far indicates that. So that's, I think that's a great mm-hmm. observation. So talk about your role. What have you had to work on and what, what do you work on kind of day-to-day in your role now as COO? Well, so the COO position actually didn't exist uh, before Robin came aboard. He actually switched the um, sort of, I guess this is the four-star general and him top down, right? Because there is the, um, <laughs> the that ranking of command uh, that he's used to in the military. So he went ahead and created what he calls a C-suite um, so he, that he could go out and focus on the long-term strategy work with the board of directors, um, go out and represent the foundation when Gary's not available because then you have the movie star and then you have the four-star general. So it was a good one too. And that would leave me then to work on the day-to-day operations of the organization. Um, When I came into the role, we were at the point of going to, I would say, mid-major foundation to a larger size organization. And it required a lot of building out policies, procedures, guidelines. Um, so the, the focus initially was that now it's, you know, making sure that we're revisiting that things still align with where we're at at the organization. It's adapting, it's implementing things. Um, basically everybody at the organization, um, reports into me or at least the team leads do, and it's just working with them to develop, uh, annual tactical plans, ensuring that, uh, their goals are being met or adjusting them accordingly. If there's for some reason the uh, outlook wasn't uh, predicted correctly. So I guess it's just the general day-to-day operations, nothing that exciting. I think for the most, for, for most people, it's probably <laughs> boring, but I'm finding it challenging for sure. <laughs> now, have you, you guys were location-based um, for the foundation before COVID or were you, were, were, did you have some remote employees prior to COVID as well? Well, the majority of the uh, staffs here in Los Angeles, California area, we do have remote employees um, throughout the country. Our programs are nationwide, so it's actually an advantage to have some employees out and about. Um, Now we're primarily remote. Um, We are having colleagues, staff come in as needed. And I think when we see some numbers drop here in California, uh, we'll probably start doing some kind of office reintegration. But what what the new looks like moving forward. I think that's the answer everybody's waiting to, to hear, but we what's do come your, in. I'm here right now. <laughs> so. what's, what's your gut say on that? Do you think you'll go back to a full five days a week or do you think you'll go back to more kind of rotation or people coming in once in a while? What's your, your thought on it? I think we're going to go more to a rotation. At some point we did start office reintegration and then we had to stop it just because numbers started to spike again. We have enough space to be able to rotate people in, If whether we do morning shifts and afternoon shifts, whether it's at a certain percentage. Um, you know, we're, again, we have a decent amount of space, so we're able to really separate out safely, you know, wear masks and 
wipe down everything. If you're in an office, close the door, make sure that people are in cubicles. There's only one or two people in that cubicle area at a time. I'd like to think we could get rotating and get at 50% capacity at some point. I think there's something to be said about human interaction and being able to talk in person and uh, come up with ideas without being on Zoom or the phone uh, is an advantage. But I know some of our younger professionals would probably rather be at home the entire time and never come back. So <laughs> yeah, it's going to be really it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there with companies whether they migrate back into the um, the in person or whether they stay away from that. Um, so in terms of growing your employees, so you, what's your team look like today? Just walk us through kind of what your direct reports are, who they are. Well, we have 44 people total on the staff. And then we also have some 1099 contractors. So for instance, the home builds, we actually don't do them in-house. We contract with a company that builds homes. So uh, we, we still consider our contractors family, however. Um, there's uh, um, the, the development department, which raises money. We have a marketing communications department, our outreach program, which is the, or, uh, the uh, department that actually goes and puts on the programs and spends the money. We have a finance and administration uh, department. And, and is that the complicated part that outreach department that's out there putting this stuff in place? Is that where the complexity of the business comes in? I would say so, because what happens is, um, you know, we will go and put our four programs into place and the initiatives uh, that are part of those programs. And that's where we spend a majority of the money that we raise. But then there are circumstances where other organizations that are like-minded and are, are things that we might not do will come to us and ask, ask us for money. And that's where the complexity comes in, right? We have to sit there and say, okay, X organization on paper seems like it's uh, a nonprofit partner that we want to have our name associated with. But then we have to go through a process to make sure that everything isn't up and up, right? We don't want we don't want to partner with an organization and give them some money to help execute their programs if they're getting that red warning on Charity Navigator, for instance. You know, right. so Robin actually did something really interesting when he came uh, to the organization. He said, "When we go and evaluate potential nonprofit partners, we're going to put them through a system called V2S Square, which stands for." vision, values, strategy, and structure. And we'll put them through this V square, S square. And if they pass it, and you know, we've had some good conversations, usually it's gonna end up being a partner of ours. And you said you manage the, the builds, the home builds through some outsourced groups or partner groups. Uh, how many of your other programs, in, because you have a lot of programs that you're funding, how many of those are rolled out through partners as well? Really, the only other one is uh, Gary's band. Um, so, uh, you know, right. he's obviously not a contractor, but <laughs> his band members, they're also on a contract um, and they, they play other gigs and stuff. I would say the majority of the time, with the exception of 2020, I think we were the primary gig. Um, you know, we have we have some uh, one off situations. Um, you know, when we, we do a home build, we'll send a photographer out there. We'll have a film crew uh, go out there. These are people Gary's worked with forever. So they're technically on contract too. But the, the biggest one is our RISE program, which is the Restoring Independence, Supporting Empowerment, the one that does home builds, home modifications. And uh, we provide specially adapted vehicles through that program as well. How do you how do you prioritize where to spend the, the money and the time as an organization? Well, the board helps us with that. <laughs> you know, when we're building out our budget, uh, we'll make the recommendations of where we think we need to prioritize uh, spend and time. And we make the presentation, uh, the uh, 
recommendations to the board and they come back and, and uh, you know, let us know, um, I guess, what pockets uh, and the priorities are going to be. That's, that's, I would say, one of their main, main functions is the fiscal oversight and any uh, program recommendations. Is that a legal oversight? Like, do they have? Is that something that the board has to do for a nonprofit, or is that more some, a way that you've set it up because it's uh, um, you just feel it's going to make you run the business in a more optimized way? No, it's it's legal. It's legal. Okay, so they have legal oversight, and then you kind of have to run with the the restrictions that they give you. Not restrictions, but yeah, guidelines. I mean- yeah, the guidelines, right? There's bylaws and guidelines that are put in place. So there's a clear structure of who's responsible for what. But when it comes to programmatic change and uh, budget, um, it's the board and their how oversight. About, how about pay levels? Do they do anything in that in that area at all? Controlling what people get paid? Um, they control uh, Robin, the CEO and COO salary. Everybody, okay. Everything else falls under the CEO's discretion. Okay. So you you operate more like a normal business there then as well. Um, so you, the team that you've got right now, are there any areas in terms of, I just, just launched a course recently called invest in your leaders. So I'm, I've been thinking a lot about growing people and growing the skill set of our leaders. Are there any areas of, of the business day to day that you focus on growing your people more than others? Well, professional development is actually brand new to the organization. I'd say two years ago, it actually didn't exist at all. It's something that we are really invested in. We think it's exceptionally important to grow your leaders in the organization and your leaders to be. Um, at some point, this is going to sound very old school, but it, it was something people really enjoyed. At some point, we actually had uh, a book club and we would actually assign out readings and have group meetings to sort of discuss what they learned in the book. We did actually podcast listening. Uh, it's a similar to a book club, but you actually listen to certain podcasts and then have the discussion uh, we, we've been sending people to professional development uh, was actually a reason why I'm the C- in, your, in your CO alliance is because <laughs> we believe in professional development. Yep. Right now it's, you know, webinars. Um, we've actually have team outings uh, or we used to have team outings. We'll come out and at some point have them leadership retreats. Um, it's, it's a huge emphasis for us. It, it's, you know what, I mean, you've got to, you've got to grow your, your team. You know, you're not going to retain people if you don't. (laughs) It's well, it's interesting. It's almost, it seems to be that Gen Y, there's two core things that Gen Y want in their job. The first one is to work with a company that has a a purpose and meaning so that they have day-to-day meaning in their work, but they feel like they're doing something for an organization that has meaning or purpose. And then secondly, they want to continue to grow in their jobs. They actually want to grow and develop as people, which is interesting because it really wasn't there for Gen X or baby boomers. So it's, it's fairly new. Well, not, I mean, the oldest Gen Y is 40, 41. So, um, but the second part of that is that I loved your book club and podcast club idea where you're not just having people read a book or listen to a podcast. You're having them come back in and talk about what they've just learned. I was telling a, a COO the other day, he's got 15 of his employees signing up for the the Invest in Your Leaders course. And I said, just do two modules this week and have them come into a lunch and learn and talk a five minute kind of book report. You know, what did I learn from the course and what am I putting in place? Is that where you're getting the real value from that book club and the podcast club with your your, uh, employees, do you think? Absolutely. And, you know, we don't just have the same person lead the discussion, it rotates. It actually started just with our leadership team and we'd take 15 minutes of the leadership meetings that we would have and have the discussion. And then we realized it was so valuable. We opened it up to the entire organization. Mm. And it, 
almost every single person raised their hand and they wanted to participate in it. Um, we brought in podcasts actually, because we, at least I thought, um, you know, people would be like, I don't want to read a book that's too old school. <laughs> so let's mix it up a little bit, but I think mixing it up actually makes it fun too. But well, having- you, can also, you can also listen to audiobooks as well, right? They don't have to read with our eyes oh. anymore. We can read with our ears now, which is a little bit weird. And we always, we always offer both. We actually purchased the, the book or the podcast or um, to your point, the audio book. And we don't certainly want that expense to be on our employees. That's, that wouldn't be right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think companies have to allocate a budget for that. It's back in the day when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we had our leadership team read one or two chapters a week out of a book. So instead of reading the whole book, we said, just read chapters one and two, and then let's talk about that. And then we'll come back and read chapters three and four, and we'll talk about that. And that was interesting as well, as it almost seemed like it was learning with a little bit more purpose than you know forcing people to read an entire book, which sometimes can be a little bit overwhelming. I like that. I like that idea. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Where do you think you've grown over the years as a COO? I, that's another great question. You know, I, I, um, God, I don't even know if I know how to answer that question, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, you know what? I've learned that, um, although this is something that, um, I've always believed in, and I really do believe in people taking responsibility and being accountable and giving where credit, uh, where credit is, where credit is due. I really believe in that one. And, um, I, I've learned that getting people to buy into that, uh, sometimes is actually more challenging than I expected. Um, you know, this organization is going through so much, so much growth and we're thriving, um, that we're having a lot of change and leadership styles. And this leadership style was very different than my predecessor. And I, I want to sit there and say, she did an amazing job. I mean, what her and Gary did to this, to up until two years ago was incredible what they did and their foresight they had, but the leadership style was very different and it's been very challenging for some of my colleagues to accept. And so um, sometimes it's just, it's hard for me to um, understand why, you know, wanting the best in somebody is a challenge. <laughs> it's funny that I've even seen some COOs and, and CEOs, mostly COOs, worry that if they're delegating more projects and and you know, working with their team more. If they're not doing work, they don't feel like they're doing their job. And I, I said, well, sometimes growing your leaders or growing your people is your job. You know, to, how do you balance that in, in terms of the day-to-day -day that, you know, you could be doing work versus growing people? How do you, or do you focus on that at all? Oh, I definitely think I, I'd like to think I'm growing people. And I like to think actually that I'm growing, I'm continually growing as well. I mean, there's people uh, who report into me that, uh, you know, have, um, more experience and I guess in the professional world and I learned from them as well and even some of the younger colleagues I clearly I, I'm always continuing to grow so um you know I, I actually it's interesting that you said that because there are days where I'm thinking to myself well I'm having a whole bunch of meetings with my direct reports and finding out what's going on and I'm like I hope this is productive enough <laughs> mm -hmm. but then I realize it, it is because then you get the special assignments um you know it's it's, um, you know, I'd say 
the biggest growth is just trusting, trusting your team leads and trusting your colleagues. And um, again, allowing them to make some mistakes as long as they, they learn from them and teaching them, you know, how to learn and why that was okay and why this wasn't okay. And let's walk through the steps. I, you know, so I think unpack, it. unpack that one for me. If, it, if it, an employee of yours, you know, has a mistake on a project, how do you handle that? What's the discussion like after that? Well, you know, sit down. So there was, I don't want to call out an employee, but there was somebody when I was still in development and uh, they were really worried that they lost uh, a, a big gift. And quite frankly, if a donor's around because they support this mission, they would have had to do something very bad for the donor to walk away. Right. But it's very easy, especially if you're younger to sit there and say, oh my God, I forgot to submit paperwork on time. That's the end all right. They're going to fire me. And that wasn't the case. The donor gave us an extension. And I just, you know, I remember walking through with this colleague and saying, okay, let's, let's figure out why did you miss the deadline, right? That's, let's, let's figure out what the problem was initially, you know, is it too much work? Uh, is it not understanding instructions, whatever it was and fix that problem. And then sit there and talk about, you know, what did you learn from it and sit there and encourage it's, it's okay that you made a mistake. Let's not do it 15 times. But it's sort of like that balance of why did it happen? What did you learn for it? What can we do to make sure it doesn't happen again? Bingo. Yeah. So it's kind of the debriefing, right? Yes. And um, when you, you do what it sounds like Mondays or it sounds like you do a, a fairly busy day of meetings, is that your one-on-one -on -one meetings with your teams? It's actually spread out throughout the week. Um, my Depending on the department, I used to do weekly meetings and then I realized it was actually, it was almost too much. Um, we used to do weekly leadership meetings, weekly one-on-one -on -one meetings, um, some group meetings, depending on what was going on. And I'm like, okay, we're saying the same thing a lot over and over again. So depending on um, which department it is, sometimes it's bi-weekly. I changed our leadership meetings to be uh, every other week. And the there's one leadership meeting that's a report out that Robin joins and hears directly what's going on with the departments and the team leads. And the other... Um, meeting that month is actually some kind of professional development, going back to that, um, whether or not everybody's going to start using Asana, for instance, or we're going to have Asana training during a leadership meeting. Yeah. So talk about that. So you just said Asana training during a leadership meeting. So what are you doing? Bringing in outside people to teach on the technology tools? Are you doing that internally with people just demoing it? How are you doing uh, that? We're, we're doing it internally. Our marketing communication team has really been the one that was, I guess, adopted the software. Um, so they've been using it. And now we realize it's a tool that should be uh, adopted organizationally wide. So um, they're going to go ahead and do the training. Um, and, you know, you talked about professional development. You know, what something that makes the organization unique here with professional development, it isn't just here's how to learn a new tool. A lot of times it's having uh, ambassadors who are hand-selected um, associates of Gary, for instance, come in and tell their story and why they're part of the foundation. There's been times when we were able to do in-person events where we had Medal of Honor recipients come in and share their stories, right? It's sort of reminding everybody, you know, why we're here and why we're doing mm -hmm. what we do every day. That's part of our professional development too. Well, and you spoke to me offline about something as well, that your father was part of the inspiration for you at the Gary Sinise Foundation. So what, what's that about? So yes, my, my dad, who was a really influential part of my life, he did serve in the army. Uh, 
uh, as uh, uh, in the Vietnam War. And I'm sorry, I guess I just said Vietnam War. I think I remember <laughs> in the army and the Korean War. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> and uh, it's actually sort of funny. For some reason, when I grew up, my uh, parents decided that they wanted to tell me he was a cook. He was a cook in the army. I was really proud of it, right? Because I, what's interesting in the military is that people actually do have, not everybody goes out and it's like, it's sure. on the battlefield, right? There yeah. are literally our musicians and photographers and veterinary uh, you know, uh, yeah. so anyhow, he was a cook. I was very proud of it. I, I took this position and I was going out to do a speech and they wanted to have a little more background about my dad. And I called my mom and I said, yeah, you know, they're asking some specific questions. And she said, why do you think he's a cook? I'm like, well, you told me he was a cook. And she's like, oh, she's like, we didn't want you to be worried. He was actually a sniper. And I'm like, well, that's a whole different well, kind of, that's a whole <laughs> position. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> how he like hurt his eye and burned his hand. You know, I, I was like, okay, he burned his hand being a cook, but how did he hurt his eye? I never understood it. Now I do. <laughs> wow. So your but, dad was a sniper and they told you he was a cook. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it took them so long to tell me, but um, the truth of the matter is he, he, and this is probably why I work so well with Robin. My dad was also very genuine and honest and a humble man and did so much uh, philanthropic work, uh, throughout his, um, I guess time on earth. And, uh, he, he just always sat there and said, you know, just respect those who, um, you know, go on the front lines and, you know, protect us and make what we have a possibility. And that's always just resonated with me. That's pretty cool. All right. I want to go back to the 21, 22 year old self. You're getting ready to kind of go off on your business career. And this, this advice, I guess, could be advice from your dad that wish you wish you'd known back then or advice from you that you wish you'd known back then. But what do you, what do you wish you'd known when you were 21 that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then? You need to be honest with yourself. You know, I started in higher education because I was very passionate for, uh, excuse me, I started in higher education because I was very passionate about it. I knew it was going to give me some really strong uh, background uh, in going into fundraising, and um, I'm always going to appreciate it. What I didn't do, and and I regret it, and now I know, is that when I lost passion for it, I wasn't honest with myself, and I didn't leave it. And I should have left the moment that I said I no longer want to raise money for higher education. Mm, I should have sat there and said I should leave, but I didn't do yeah. it. Yeah, I did that years ago as well. I was I. Then the last twelve months are horrible. Elizabeth Fields, the COO for the Gary Sinise Foundation. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command Podcast. Appreciate all the time again. I appreciate your time. Thank you again. It was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.